Welcome to the Pursuit of Health podcast, where we challenge longstanding assumptions, beliefs, and attitudes about what it means to be healthy by exploring new points of view, researching concepts about health, and in other words, all the topics that everyone's talking and asking about. I'm your host, Doug Cook. In this podcast, I want to encourage you, the listener, to think differently about your own health and health pursuits and to keep an open mind as we explore diverse perspectives new evidence and strategies by connecting with thought leaders who are pushing the boundaries in the health sciences. Hey everyone, welcome to the Pursuit of Health podcast. I'm your host, Doug Cook. On today's show, we have Dr. Hannah Kaliova, who also has a PhD and is the Director of Clinical Research at the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine where she directs research studies analyzing the effects of food choices on insulin resistance and the regulation of a healthy body weight. Dr. Kaliova earned her doctorate in nutrition and diabetes and her medical degree from Charles University in Prague, Czech Republic. Her current research includes analyzing the thermic effect of food in response to a six-week dietary intervention. Her favorite research topics includes testing the effects of a plant-based diet on metabolism, insulin function, fitness, and mental health, as well as studying the impact of meal timing and meal frequencies effect on metabolism and body weight. Dr. Kaliova's favorite prescription for optimal health and wellness is to eat a whole plant-based diet and to be physically active. And with that, let's get to the show. Hannah, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Pursuit of Health podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really pleased to have you on. I'm really excited. I love chatting to people and just talking about all things health to kind of get re-energized as to why I pursued nutrition. I never wanted to become a dietitian, but since I started this podcast, I've talked to other points of view, like sort of these kind of ancestral health people and other people who have uh, opinions on eating animal products for health. So it wouldn't be balanced unless I got someone like yourself on it because there's tons of research to look at health from a different angle. So if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in plant-based diet and specifically as it relates to metabolic health, which is a huge health concern nowadays. Absolutely. My name is Hannah Kaliova. I'm an endocrinologist by training. And during my training as an endocrinologist, it just dawned on me that people with diabetes were getting the dietary recommendations that were not really making their disease a lot better. They were following the carbohydrate counting recommendations, but their disease, you know, was getting worse and worse, and they were developing complications. And I decided to do some research on the effects of a plant-based diet for diabetes. And we showed that a plant-based diet was actually able to improve diabetes twice as effectively compared to the conventional recommendations of carb counting. And so that really was a start of my journey into the health benefits of plant-based diets for different conditions. So my first study was in diabetes, but since then we've done multiple studies, not only in patients with diabetes, but also in people who are struggling with being overweight, who have metabolic syndrome, for improving their metabolism, and also for other health conditions. 
So that's amazing because I'm of the generation because I've been doing this for 22 years. So I remember the exchange system with diabetes, right? Like you counted out these carbs and there was a movement to not have people with diabetes feel different than other people. So we encourage them to eat, quote, the normal diet, which is debatable as to whether or not that's even healthy. And so, yeah, I think there is a lot of evidence or when we look back, in some ways, it really wasn't helping people. So just before we move ahead, for purposes of definition, when you say plant-based, is it vegan? So there's different ways how to use the word plant-based. When I'm mentioning it, I mean vegan. But just to say clearly to everyone who's listening, there's many more definitions out there. Many times it's being used for diets that just emphasize plant foods, but may also include some other animal products. But for this podcast, when I'm using plant-based, I mean vegan. Okay. Exclusively. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. It's just an important distinction. So there's, uh, like you said, there's a lot of different uses of that expression. So why don't you just maybe tell us a little bit about the research and maybe the things that you found, and maybe you have an idea, is there a distinction between plant-based slash vegan diets and the standard American diet that we call it, and or a better quality omnivore diet? Is there distinctions Mm -hmm. that you found? Yeah, these are excellent questions. So my research started with the study in patients with type 2 diabetes. And after this study, we we started looking into the mechanisms in more detail. So we did another study where we showed one single plant-based meal is able to increase the incretin secretion. The incretins are the hormones that are secreted in our gut in response to meal intake. And people with diabetes have diminished secretion of incretin hormones. And the incretins, you know, stimulate the insulin secretion. So it's vitally important for people with type 2 diabetes to have their incretin hormones in order. (laughs) And we found out when we compared a standard American meal with a plant-based meal, there was a flat curve in incretin secretion after the standard American meal. But there was a nice peak in GLP-1 secretion after the plant-based meal. And the effect was comparable to a DPP-4 inhibitor, you know, drugs that have been specifically developed to treat this condition. So that's one of the mechanisms. Another, in another study, we also demonstrated that a plant-based diet is not only able to increase the insulin sensitivity, the responsiveness of the cells to insulin, but it's also able to improve the beta cell function, how the beta cells are able to secrete insulin, which is a groundbreaking finding you know, given the amount of money that's being spent on all the medications that might be able to at least slow down the progression of beta cell failure. And a plant-based diet is not only able to slow it down, but actually reverse the process to a certain degree. So these are the mechanisms behind diabetes. And now Further to your question, how aggressive do you need to be in your diet to get these benefits? Do you need to be vegan? Do you need to be low-fat vegan? Or can you be lacto-ovo-vegetarian or even pescatarian? Well, you know, 
one good answer is from the Adventist Health Study 2, where they compared people according to the animal product consumption. And they found out there was a linear relationship between the animal product consumption and the body mass index increasing with the animal product consumption. So the lowest body mass index was in vegans. In fact, vegans were the only group whose average BMI was within the normal range. And then lacto-ovo-vegetarians were slightly overweight on average. And there was a clear linear relationship with non-vegetarians being the heaviest. And now, together with the body mass index increase according to animal product consumption, there was also a linear increase in the risk of developing type 2 diabetes, again, with the lowest rates in vegans. So it seems like the less animal products we consume, the better off for our metabolism, for the weight management, and also for the risk of diabetes and metabolic disease. But there's also a second route, which is important to consider, and that's unprocessed versus processed foods. So if you're moving toward the vegan diet or a plant-based diet, you also want to get away from the junk that has plant sources but has been highly processed, like sugar-sweetened beverages and french fries and all the sweets. So these are two different routes and both of them are important. It seems like the more we can get away from the animal products and the more unprocessed plant foods we can consume, the better off we will be in terms of metabolism. And it's also important to mention for people who are struggling with their weight, they will even if they transition to a vegan diet, they will also need to watch their fat content in the diet. In our research studies, we usually limit the fat consumption to 20 to 30 grams per day. And uh, that enables the ectopic fat that's being stored you know, where it, it doesn't belong to. Our adipose tissue has only a certain capacity to store fat. Once we exceed it, the fat starts overflowing to the liver and to the muscle. And to give you an analogy, it's like taking a bubble bath and the bath is just getting full and all of a sudden the water starts overflowing. Well, first, it's not a big deal because there's tile in your bathroom. But once the water reaches your living room, you're in trouble. There's carpets, there's hardwood floors, and the water is just going to do some damage. And that's exactly what's happening in the liver and muscle cells. All the fat that's being stored ectopically in these organs actually cause insulin resistance and other metabolic disturbances. So if you have too much fat stored inside your liver and muscle cells, the easiest way how to get rid of it is to decrease the consumption of fat uh, 
And if you watch your fat content, if you go on a vegan diet and also watch your fat content, you will start mobilizing this fat that's stored ectopically pretty quickly. We just published a paper in JAMA Network Open. That's a study with more than 200 participants. It was a 16-week study. So for four months, people were either on a vegan diet or they stayed on their usual control diet. And we were sending a subsample of these participants to Yale University, to doctors Schulman and Peterson, to do the magnetic resonance spectroscopy of the liver and of the muscle, to measure the fat content in the liver and in the muscle. And we found out that the liver fat content dropped by 34% in 16 weeks, which is just amazing. You know, there's no medication that would be a cure for fatty liver disease. There's no causal treatment for the condition, but a vegan diet seems to be working super well. If it's a low-fat vegan diet, you can mobilize the, the fat pretty quickly. This was in people with type 2 diabetes? These were people who were overweight and they did not have diabetes, but the overweight state was putting them at risk of developing diabetes in the future. Yeah. So did they, I guess the insulin resistance was assessed HOMA IR or something to that effect? Exactly. Okay. We, we did HOMA. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's, I, I remember uh, reading Randall cycle. You've probably heard of the Randall cycle. So in States, this is what I've read. I'd love to know your opinion. So when people's for want of a phrase, when people are metabolically broken or they're not metabolically flexible, mm-hmm. people do really well on high carb, low fat or high fat, low carb, because it gives the cells the opportunity to burn one of those fuels. But when they're both there at the same time, it doesn't work well. Do you give that any credence at all? Or It's definitely, uh, you know, an interesting hypothesis. And we have shown in our approach that they're doing really well on the high carbohydrate diet where we limit the fat consumption. And recently, we also compared a low-fat vegan with a Mediterranean diet. So we tested this concept, actually, because a Mediterranean diet is a high-fat diet. It contains also a lot of fruits and vegetables. There's some overlap between Mm -hmm. the vegan and the Mediterranean, right? There's a lot of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes. But the Mediterranean diet also includes some fish and low-fat dairy olive oil and nuts. So it's higher in fat compared to the low-fat vegan. And the findings are going to be published in just a few days. So watch out for that. (laughs) (laughs) Where? Okay, so uh, is that going to be an open access or is it going to be paid wall? Okay, it's going to be open access. Okay, so maybe we can touch base and I can add that to the Yeah, I can can let you know. I'll send you the link. So that kind of begs the question, because one thing that I think can be confusing for people is when they say, oh, they'll talk about a high fat diet and they always throw up the picture of a burger and French fries and a milkshake. Mm. So you could have a vegan diet that's got lots of, you said, olive oil, nuts, seeds, Mm. avocado. So even in that setting, because I'm wondering like the plant foods, what causes the incretin release? Uh, A lot of people just think about insulin and they forget there's these hormones, as you mentioned, Mm. incretin, which 
influence yeah. insulin's actions. And so I'm wondering, is it the antioxidants? Is it other things in these foods? So even in this context where you were looking at a low fat diet of 20 to 30 grams per day, which is really, it's quite low. So you would still limit things like avocado and nuts and seeds, would you? That's what we do in our research yeah. studies. Yeah. Limit added oils and nuts and avocados. And is that specifically, do you think the mechanism is from fat in terms of its molecular structure or is it to help control calories? Uh, yeah, it's both. It's, it's both, both. Eh? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so do we have an, an idea of the mechanism, what specifically about a, a vegan diet, how it supports incretin function or rather release and how it helps to protect beta cells? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It has been shown that fiber definitely plays a role in helping in creatine secretion. So fiber is one of the mechanisms. The higher, you know, these meals were matched in macronutrient content. So we cannot explain the differences in macronutrients. However, the fiber content seems to be one of the major mechanisms. And also saturated fat in animal foods impairs the signaling in beta cells. And since there's very little saturated fat in the, in the plant-based diet, that might be another potential mechanism. You know, the fat composition is completely different in favor of PUFAS and MUFAS instead of saturated fat. So the fat composition seems to be another potential mechanism. And that includes coconut, I guess? Exactly. Yeah. Coconut has been shown to increase cholesterol and LDL cholesterol less than butter, but still there's an increase when you consume coconut oil. So we need to be really careful with the tropical oils as well that are high in saturated fat. Gotcha. And so the fiber, I'm curious to think it must obviously influence microbiota, the gut bacteria, because they play a role in energy partitioning and, and digestibility of the extraction of calories from food. Was there a threshold did you find or what kind of fiber intake do these diets deliver? The average consumption of fiber in our studies is somewhere around 30 to 35 grams. Oh. So It's, you know, a pretty healthy diet. Some participants may get, you know, even to 50 grams a day, but it's not necessary. Like, you know, with 30 to 35 grams of fiber a day, you will get all the benefits. Well, that's good because my, I think my breakfast has 30 by the time I put in the chia, (laughs) the flax, the berries, the spinach, uh, and I even use bran buds with psyllium. So good old psyllium. So it's not a huge amount. So it's a nice low threshold is what you're saying. People don't have to go crazy. And, Um, And, you know, this is in line with the meta analyses that have been published for general population, like the low decentile consumption of fiber was somewhere between five and 10 grams per day, like super low. And people were getting benefits from eating just 20 to 25 grams of fiber a day. And that was able to reduce their all-cause mortality by about 15%. That's for general population. And for people with type 2 diabetes, the benefits are even higher. Fiber consumption, again, around 20 to 25 grams a day, reduces the cardiovascular disease mortality by 40%, which is amazing. 
So people with diabetes need to consume fiber even more than general public to get the benefits. It's even more important for them. Yeah, and that number in practice, when we think people are getting five, 10, maybe 15 grams a day, to move them to 30 isn't that much when you look at what that looks like in real food. Mm -hmm. But to get those servings in, if you're not a clinician, it's really difficult and from a behavior change point of view. So it's funny how close to the finish line, I guess that is. But then again, it's so far because after 22 years, it's amazing how you're still dealing with people's barriers and ideas. And and it's not about blaming them. It's just, it's so close and yet it can still be a challenge just to nudge people up to that, to that number. Yeah, absolutely. But once people realize that there's no fiber in animal foods and that plants are the only source of fiber, it may, you know, just shift something for them. They might be like willing to switch up the foods that they usually consume in order to get in the fiber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wanted to get your opinion because I know from reading your bio and stuff, which is really a hot topic, is the concept of meal timing and meal frequency on metabolism. Because just to preface it before you go into it, is that in practice, it was amazing to me how many people... I spoke with over the years because they're grazing all the time, they're eating all the time, that when I asked them about hunger, they looked at me kind of strangely and then realized they don't really know what hunger means. And intuitively, I just kind of thought there must be some benefit. Now I know the answer, but there must be some benefit going longer periods. And I say longer, like go a good four hours between meals in terms of the impact on hormones and insulin and that kind of stuff. So you're doing a lot of research around meal timing and meal frequency. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's my favorite topic. Oh, good. (laughs) So after the study with a plant-based diet for people with diabetes, my second study that I conducted was for people with type 2 diabetes again, but this time comparing two meals a day, breakfast and lunch, with six meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks in between and second dinner, which is the usual model. Mm -hmm. And we found out that with the same amount of calories, with the same macronutrient content of the diet, people were losing more weight on two meals a day, and also their insulin sensitivity increased more on two meals a day their liver fat content went down more on two meals a day. And interestingly, their hunger feelings decreased more on two meals a day. Can you believe that? (laughs) You know, people were kind of skeptical at the beginning of the study if they could even do it. They were like, I know I can do six meals a day, but I'm not sure I will be so hungry after two meals a day. I'm not sure if I can do it. And I was like, okay, leave it up to me. (laughs) You know, if you cannot do it, it'll be my failure. (laughs) And after only a few days, they were amazed. They just got used to it. And they were like, this is amazing. This really works. So that's an exciting topic. You know, can you even cure your, your diabetes by intermittent fasting? There's a case study series that has been published on intermittent fasting and a potential reversal of type 2 diabetes. It's just a couple of case studies so far, but it seems like the timing of the meals 
is at least as important as what you eat. So if we were to combine all the studies that have been published so far, we know that breakfast seems to be the most important meal of the day. Breakfast should be the largest meal of the day. You know, that brings us back to the proverb, eat breakfast like a king. Mm -hmm. And, you know, research is showing it's, it's really true. The calories that you eat in the morning will be burned more effectively. And also insulin secretion is more effective in the morning compared to the afternoon and evening. They even did a study where they were looking at the insulin secretion after lunch. And lunch was served either at noon or then late in the afternoon, like 3.30. And after only a couple of hours of delay, the insulin sensitivity went down by 46% only during the afternoon. So the circadian rhythms are real. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if we can align our body and if we can align the timing of our meals to get the most from our food in the morning and then less for lunch and not eat anything in the evening, that seems to be working the best. If you're still hungry in the evening, then keep your dinners super light, maybe a bowl of salad or just a piece of fruit. And gradually, you may at least start to limit your eating window. So let's say you eat your breakfast at 7, then you have your lunch at noon, and you have your dinner at 7. That would be a 12-hour eating window. You can shorten that by having the dinner at 5 p.m. That would be shortening the eating window to 10 hours. And if you want to play with it a little bit more, you can, instead of having the dinner, you can just have an apple at 3 p.m. That would further reduce the eating window to eight hours. And eventually, you may get to a point where you are like, okay, let's try to just skip the apple and see what happens. (laughs) And if you do that, you might even shift the the lunch to maybe 1 p.m. so that you are eating a little bit later, which would be about a six-hour eating window and 18 hours of fasting. And now I analyzed the data from the Adventist Health Study 2 with more than 50,000 participants. And we were looking at how the length of night fast is important for weight management. People with the night fast of at least 18 hours had a better weight management compared with people who had a shorter night fast. We also showed that the number of meals was super important. There was a linear relationship between the number of meals and how people were gaining weight over the follow-up of more than seven years. That means people who are snacking, who are eating four or even more meals a day, they were gaining weight compared with people who were eating three meals a day. But people who were eating two meals a day were even, even better off than those eating three meals a day. So two meals a day with five to six hours apart with the right timing, that means breakfast in the morning and lunch close to noon, that would align your 
circadian rhythms the most. That's my understanding of the current research. Yeah, and it's, uh, I guess, for people to understand, if you think about our biology and our evolution and the circadian rhythm, like cortisol is released early in the morning to get us revved up for the day to go out and do whatever it is we used to do. I guess in this case, pick tubers, not hunt antelope. But, um, you know, and then you would go into a nutritional ketosis and the ketones suppress appetite and that kind of stuff. So this is all the rage. I know we're, it, it's not, how do I say this and without... It's just the the eating environment and even our eating patterns, it's just, it is working against us. So mm. that's very fascinating. And, I, and I'm just wondering practically what might be best for people. I would just, you know, encourage people just to try and go that four or five mm. hours without that impulsive need to like eat again, yeah, like a mid-morning exactly. snack and like, you know, having to send kids to school with like all these <laughs> snacks because, you know, it might go for three or four hours. And then you may be brings... surprised that you will not die. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it just gets you more in tune with your inherent eating cues, right? Like as a species, we've got these, these right. cues. So I just had a couple of questions about vegan diets because mm. I'm for whatever diet works for a person. Mm. And so we're now in a position. So I've, I know through nutrigenomic studies that it's estimated about 20 to 30% of people don't convert beta carotene to retinol very well. And I wonder if you had an opinion on that. And now vegans can use sources of vitamin D from lichen mm. and DHA from algae. Mm. So in the past, they used to rely on D2 and DHA, they wouldn't really use. They rely on ALA conversion. So knowing that these are really crucial and essential nutrients, would this be part of your recommendations? I'm just purely curious, like a vegan source DHA, a lichen source of D3 if they can't get sun and any opinion on the vitamin A conversion? Yeah, absolutely. So it would be great if we lived in nature, if we got enough sunlight to get all the vitamin D we need. It would be great if we drank water from a fountain and got our vitamin B12, you know, from the soil bacteria that are in the water and in the soil. But, you know, most of us don't live in, in contact with nature anymore like that. So we're kind of dependent on the supplements. We know that as we age, the absorption of vitamin B12 is lower and lower. And also some medications may affect the absorption of vitamin B12. So it's important to include a vitamin B12 supplement on a vegan diet. It's not made by animals or plants. It's made by bacteria. And a supplement will provide all your needs. It's a water-soluble supplement, so there's no harm. 100 micrograms a day would be enough. Now, vitamin D, over the winter months, it's been recommended for general public to supplement vitamin D. Especially now, during COVID, there's data indicating that a low status of vitamin D may increase your risk of viral diseases and also of worse outcomes for COVID-19. So it's important, particularly in this season, to supplement vitamin D. It seems that the dose that is, that is being recommended has slightly increased with the data from the COVID studies. So uh, 2,000 international units is the original recommendation, and it has 
it has been increased to even 6,000 international units per day. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of omega-3s and, and plant-based diets, the flaxseed is an excellent source of omega-3s. The alpha-linoleic acid has its own benefits. It's not only dependent on the conversion. It has its own benefits. So if you can get flaxseed or walnuts, that's wonderful. But algae are also an excellent source of uh, of omega-3s and also of iodine. So that's another another micronutrient that, that you can get in algae. For iron and zinc, there's no specific recommendations. We don't recommend people who switch over to a plant-based diet to supplement these. Iron deficiencies are about have the same prevalence in vegans as in omnivores. There's usually other reasons for iron deficiencies uh, than diet. But of course, uh, you know, a dietary assessment would be one of the tools that we would use if someone was iron deficient. Okay. Yeah, that's great. So any final thoughts at all on the plant-based diets on anything you didn't cover that you want to just sum up? If not, uh, where can people learn more about your amazing work and all the stuff you're doing over at the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, et cetera? Yeah, I would like to also say that we recently published a paper that describes how a plant-based diet also changes the gut microbiome. And as we mentioned, fiber is amazing. It's the fuel for the right kind of bacteria in our gut especially the ones that are producing the short-chain fatty acids that will improve the insulin sensitivity and are cardioprotective and have so many metabolic benefits. And we showed that a plant-based diet increases the abundance of Fecalibacterium prausnitzi, which is one of the bacteria that produces the short-chain fatty acids. And people with diabetes, for example, have low counts of this bacteria. And the low counts in people with diabetes have been associated with increased inflammation and increased insulin resistance. And we showed that the increase in Fecalibacterium prausnitzi had also positive impact on body weight management and also insulin sensitivity. So we're discovering the mechanisms behind how plant-based diets work. And you can learn more about our research at our website, pcrm.org. It's for Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, pcrm.org. Okay, perfect. Thanks so much for being on. I love getting all different points of view, and I certainly learned a lot. And what I think is going to be super interesting is when people are listening on their various platforms, they can be redirected to the website, uh, my website, dougcookrd.com, where I'll put some of those links of that uh, upcoming research, which is great to know. And because it's open access, people don't have to worry about a paid wall. So thank you very much for taking the time. I know you're busy. You're doing a lot of great work. I know people are going to find this very fascinating. And thanks again. Thank you, Doug.
Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, just go ahead and hit subscribe. And make sure you visit my website, dougcookrd.com for more information. And you can check out the research that Hannah was speaking about. And I look forward to being with you again on future episodes. 